The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gelson and this is episode 27. Today my guest is a friend of mine who uh, none of you will know because I can't believe I'm going to say this on my podcast. He works for the mouse. Not only does he work for the mouse, he actually works for Disney. Today's guest is Brian Reed who is a stagehand at Disney and a rigger and rope access technician and an all-around very knowledgeable guy. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. It's uh it's it's a strange day. There's some things happening now. Yep. As we're recording this, it is seven oh seven Eastern time on Tuesday, November third. I almost said the second. And uh yeah, the election is happening. We're watching some results, maybe. Maybe having a cocktail and uh finding out if we make it through the night. So hey, this should be fun. So, uh, question for everyone that uh, is on the podcast: Who are you? Oh, who am I? We just got real existential right there, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, well, I am, by my definition, a dad, a husband. Uh, got my wife Denise, my daughter Sam and Sarah, and other than that, that kid in high school who was into punk rock, heavy metal, skateboarding, and BMX. I'm 50 years old now, and I'm still that kid. Uh, career-wise, I work for the Disneyland Resort. I am a stagehand. I'm a rigger. That is where I spend most of my time, uh, most of the year. But I've also got a rope access technician uh, feather in my cap. And a lot of time uh, over the last two years, I've spent as an onboarding facilitator, which means that when we do a big hiring push, I'm one of the first people that new hires meet when they come into the department and get them all lined out on how life works within technical services at the Disneyland Resort. I was never the guy that got into this in high school. Uh, I was, you know, like I said, off skating ditches and somewhere between Iron Maiden and Black Flag on my cassette playlist uh, with the boombox sitting at the top of that ditch and never touched a theater in high school. Although in my senior year, when I was super burned out and had senioritis all the time, uh, and ironically enough was failing my math class, uh, my despised algebra teacher said something that stuck with me. And he said, when you go to college, go do things that you wouldn't normally do. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, and for some reason I held on to that. And in 1988, when I was a freshman at Cal State Long Beach, I remembered that when I was signing up for classes one day and I said, okay, let's do something we wouldn't normally do. And I took an acting class and that acting class was pretty cool. And I decided uh, not too long after that, that I was going to be an actor. And not too long after that happened, I think it was 89, uh, I got an offer to be uh, an assistant stage manager for California Repertory Company, which was the graduate professional arm of the department. 
And I said, sure, I'll go be an ASM. Showed up at my first rehearsal and I said, hey, I'm your ASM. And, they, and everybody that was there said, yay, we have an ASM. And I went, cool. Hey, what's an ASM do, by the way? <laughs> um, and once we got going on that first production, a show called Night Rehearsal, uh, which was set not only in a 99-seat theater, but also had two remote sets that were only seen by the audience via video monitors around the room. Uh, and I was in charge of all of the set changes and wrangling the actors remotely. I thought, wow, this is really cool. I think I could actually do this for the rest of my life. And when they handed me a headset, it was all over. I'm like, oh, that's it. Okay, jobs with headsets. There it is. I'm done. And I have been here ever since. So random fun fact, you mentioned Iron Maiden. Yeah. And uh, I just watched something recently, and I, I think I knew this, but it refreshed my memory, that Bruce Dickerson is a pilot. Yes. And he is actually one of a few non-commercial pilots who's trained on 747s. Yes. And he owns a business that does training. He teaches other pilots how to fly 747s. Yes. That is yeah. just so wild. Yeah, there's there's a great documentary that the band put out um, when they started flying themselves on tour uh, called Flight Six Six Six, of course, uh, and and how they moved from I forget what the previous airplane was, but they've moved up to the seven forty seven now, and that yes, Bruce does fly uh, a good portion of each tour. Uh, whenever they land in LA, if I can't get to the show, I still try to get out to LAX just to gawk at it because yep. you've got this humongous airplane sitting out here with Eddie on the tail and you're just like, they do, they fly that whole setup in that airplane and the singer is the guy doing it. Talk about double dipping. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it just kind of goes on with a lot of stuff Bruce does. I mean, I know he's a, published author he was high level fencer for several years in the 80s you know all sorts of all sorts of weird side hustles for that guy i uh, i was uh, i learned that or re re remembered that watching a uh, a documentary on air force one and he was basically saying if you have the king of america's flying it's got to be in the in the most sophisticated jet ever uh -huh. so it was pretty cool yeah yeah no. so <laughs> getting getting away from the uh, the sidetrack mm -hmm. um so you're working as an asm yeah where at, at what point did rigging start to show itself to you um it took a while i mean we're talking about my first you know like like i said i count the, the cal rep gig as my first asm job um, because I was working with professionals and was held to that standard. It was not the kind of thing where they said, it's like, oh, well, you're a student. We're going to you know, go easy on you. It's like, no, you, ha you had to keep up. Um, spent a majority of my time through college as a stage manager and then did a lot of stuff up in L.A. that's equity waiver and equity waiver shows being, you know, 40, 50 seats um, in a lot of converted retail spaces. There's no rigging, you know, lights are up there. However, they're up there and you're getting, you know, $40 for the run of, you know, 30 performances or something like that. Hydro reinforced O-beams. Oh man. Um, 
my you know my my favorite equity waiver sort of horror story was uh, the closing night of this show I did called Down an Alley Filled with Cats. It's about these two guys that get locked in this Australian bookstore overnight, and it's just the two of them sort of mentally sparring with each other, and it's very quiet and it's very very intimate with you know just the two of them on stage in the space next door a nightclub had opened up on closing night. So in this very quiet, very, you know, actor centric environment, I'm having to make a curtain speech before we start while you're listening to coming through the wall. It's like, okay, so a different set of problems. Rigging came in my twenties. I was working at this giant ocean liner in Long Beach, California called the Queen Mary. And somehow they figured out that I had this background uh, from school and a little bit of professional uh, work as a sort of all around go-to guy. And they started doing bigger and bigger events and they started tapping me more and more to do, you know, the audio, do the lighting. And it was all those things in your life where you sit there and you wonder, how have I survived this long on the job? And how have I not wrecked a whole lot of gear? Um, and that was where it, where it started. I was almost, almost self-taught the first time I ever hung a truss. It was only about, let's see, going into the, into the fog of memory. Maybe a 10-foot stick of... 20 inch truss. Um, but I did everything wrong with it. I hung it from a handrail. I worked, uh, up in the air alone late at night, deep in the part of the ship where nobody went. And as time goes on, you start looking back at things and you're like, wow, I really did that poorly. I need to get smarter about this. And then from there on, it was just little things would just come to me. And every time it looked like something was about to go up in the air, I was trying to get close to where I could start, you know, absorbing that knowledge, trying to ask a question here, a question there. Um, And then by the time I moved to Vegas, when I was 29 or 30, uh, I got in and took a big leap at the MGM Grand when my buddy Matthew Riley got me hired to work at their theme park. The MGM Grand Adventures theme park had a stunt show called Dueling Pirates. And he was the kind of like the lead technician on it. And nobody else on the staff at the theme park was really all that fond of working at height and being a stunt show and being pirate themed. You know, we had not only a giant swimming pool in the theater, but we also had a full-size pirate ship that had to get climbed and inspected and have all the gags reset early in the morning. And that was it. I moved to Vegas a couple weeks later. I, I got hired pretty much, I'm sure, because I said, yes, I have no problem climbing and going right. 80 feet in the air. And it was on. It was a crash course uh, in real time. Yeah, it's not that un- uncommon um, on certain shows that have good structure to say, and I'm not talking physically, but from a a training and 
procedural standpoint that a lot of the times people will say, you know, if you're looking for a employee, you're, you're not necessarily looking for the most skilled person, but a, a, a certain personality that you can mold, you know, you can teach the skills to say, is what I'm trying to get to, that if you have the right personality, you can teach the skills and learn things. So the, the right personality of, I'm not afraid of heights, you know, was certainly a draw for, for them. Um, and you see that across all markets of industry where it's, hey, you may not know what the widget is, I can teach you that. But if you have the right attitude and personality, then that's a majority of the position. And that is a big shift that I, I have encountered over the last 10 years in myself and in what I look at, at in work. I've worked really hard and been lucky enough to sort of get away from the, well, you don't know anything mentality that I think a lot of people fall into. Um, there is that sort of stereotype of rigors, you know, that we're kind of, kind of gruff, kind of rough and think that we're all that. And really in the last 10 years or so, I'm, I'm really happy to say that the idea of, yes, if you have a certain personality, if you have that certain drive that, that want to learn, I can teach you anything. But if you're not cool, I probably don't want to teach you and you probably won't succeed. Right. Um, so how long did you spend in Vegas? I was there for four years, I think it was. Um, I was, see, bounced out of LA at the end of 99. So it was 2000 through, I think it was 2003 or 2004. Um, it was the final summer of the MGM Grand's theme park. And I want you to think about that. A theme park open in the summertime in Las Vegas. Uh, not quite enough shade. But like I said, I had a I had a swimming pool in my venue, so you know on on lunch hour it was a lot of uh, quote unquote underwater inspections with the dive scooter. Yeah, um, you know there's there's always ways to get around it. Um, so there was that. The park closed down. I got moved over to EFX, uh, which at the time uh, Tommy Toon was the headliner for it, and meeting him in a in a blackout in the middle of a costume change was. Another one of those sort of, you know, cool moments that stick with you forever. It's like, wait, is this, is this legend of Broadway really, you know, calling out to me in the dark, asking me what my name is? Yeah, he is. Oh man. Okay. That guy really is tall. Um, so the MGM happened, uh, like I said, EFX for a little while. And then I got lucky with this small East side venue uh, at a casino called Samstown way out on Boulder Highway. Samstown decided they were going to open up a, a uh, showroom and I got in there as the assistant carpenter and from there on out for about almost the next year the uh, going in there and, and doing a whole lot of a lot of uh, touring acts sort of on the legacy side of things. It was a small little stage only about 40 wide and 30 deep but to augment the lighting that was specced we hung truss and we had a set of motors. And so I got to be, you know, one of the two people that were checking motors all the time, you know, and making changes depending on what the riders said. So suddenly there it was truss and shackles and chain motors were in my life. What, um, at this point you, you've been in the, the rigging side of the business for a few years. Mm-hmm. 
do you remember what you were thinking you you wanted to do like what was the career trajectory at that point the career trajectory at that point um was focused on dollar signs um this was the first adult money i'd probably made in my whole life so i didn't really care where i went and what i was doing as long as you know the cash was right and i'm not talking about you know making six figures a year is like it was just for the first time in my life i was clearing forty thousand a year and didn't have to have side jobs so if i wanted to go out and you know buy myself a game for my playstation i didn't have to sweat it i could just go do it right. but the thing with dueling pirates um that stunt show showed me that there are wizards out there and there is so much to know and so much to learn. The head rigger at the MGM at that time was a guy named Bear Long. And Bear was, you know, pretty much what I think a lot of people view in their head when they think of a rigger. I mean, he had the big Fu Manchu mustache and he looked like he probably rode a Harley or two at one time. And he knew so much stuff. And anytime I thought I was starting to get good at anything, he could show up and he could just pick my stuff apart and just show me everything. It's like, okay, you, you know, it's like, you missed this. You could do this better. It's like, I don't know why you're over here acting like an idiot about this thing, you know, but in that very sort of Jedi master way, like he is, he is showing you the path. And so while the, the Samstown thing was great, strictly from an overtime standpoint, because we would do club nights after the concerts. Uh, you know, so Friday at Samstown was usually an 18 hour day and I was getting paid hourly. Mm. And that didn't, you know, when, when it came time to cash the check, that was not horrible. Um, no. But in the back of my mind, especially after 9-11 happened, when everybody in town got laid off in about a 72 hour period, you know, I had to really, that was about the first time I ever had to think, you know, it's like, okay, dude, you are 31 years old and you have lucked into a lot of good stuff, but think about where you want to go. And I went into the Wayback Machine and I remembered one of my f uh, first jobs out of college that sort of was a recurring gig. I was working for a children's theater company in Long Beach, California called MyArt, Musical Youth Artist Repertory Theater. And, you know, every 6, 12, 18 months, Peter Pan came around in the schedule. And I met this guy working for Foy named Paul Rubin. And Paul was pretty cool. And he was, like, again, wizard-level, you know, type person at what he did. And this whole idea of, like, wow, I have never seen flying up close and it really is a thing. And wait a minute. He's just, he's training these other dads how to do this. And they're actually doing it. Okay. So I'm sitting around after having getting, you know, laid off by Sam's town. And everybody's, you know, kind of freaking out about what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I called up Paul one day, probably six months, uh, you know, after the layoffs happened and talked to him once and then talked to him again like six months later and i went in 
to have an interview with him on his current gig. He was one of the owners of ZFX Flying Effects, and I went in and had an interview with him and Robert Dean at the Hard Rock in Vegas and blew it. I had had entirely too much coffee in the morning and I was entirely too hyped up at the possibility of this happening. And I just went in and pretty much um, just probably looked as spazzy as I felt. Uh, and they didn't go for it. And mm-hmm. a couple more months went by and I was like, oh, no, you know, what? It's some, there's, there's something weird here. And Paul and I were still in contact and something happened about six months later. And they were like, hey, you know, come on back. Let's, let's talk again. And I did. And this time they took a chance on me and suddenly I was a ZFX flying illusions uh, employee. And that was when it really clicked. It was the, you know, there was that, that, that element of the rush from the stunt show uh, because, you know, no matter how many times you watch somebody jump off of an exploding tower, even though you know how it's supposed to go, there's still that there's still that little kick in the pants every time, you know, someone goes and does it. Um, and now here I was taking this around to all these different companies, all these different locations and showing everybody how to do this and getting that. There's that phrase, beginner's mind. You know, like when something is new to you and something is fresh to you and suddenly, you know, horizons open, it was that all the time. I got to show people how to do this and take them from, I'm not, you know, some people take, take to that wire, like they were born for it, especially on the performer side. They're just like, let's go, let's do it. And I've, you know, that's great. It's the ones when, you know, they, you can tell that that performer and, you know, a lot of times it's a high school kid there's a lot of work in high schools and a lot of work in community theaters for this for this sort of thing peter pan wizard of oz all those classics they make money um and when you can take that performer whether they're the lead or they're one of the supporting performers and put them on that wire and show them it's like okay you think you can do this but i can tell that you're still a little unsure and we're going to get through that first flying rehearsal and you can see the confidence has just gone through the roof in that person and in the operators themselves as well. That's where it's at. And I think that is a, a very important topic that maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about, which is um, you and I both are very active on, on controlbooth.com. Yeah. And uh, for a long time, um, there was a, a kind of a blanket rule of we don't talk about rigging. Mm-hmm. And part, part of that was, uh, you know, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, the number of people who were on that message board who were, I'll use the term qualified, to talk about rigging was pretty limited. You add on top of that, typing a description of how to do something, you know, you, you can't teach rigging over the phone to mm-hmm. say. Can you? Certainly, but it's not as effective as learning from someone in person. And without fail, every six weeks, someone would post, hey, we're doing Peter Pan, and I need to know how to fly someone. 
And with again, that would be met with, don't. <laughs> Sorry, yes. we're not going to answer that. Then yes. we started evolving a little more to uh, call ZFX, call D2, flying by Foy, call the professionals. Oh, well, can't I just do this? And it would always be the discussion of what you just mentioned. Yes, chances are you can figure out how to build an apparatus to do it. You can buy a rock climbing harness. You can get some wire rope and some shackles and clips and stuff. You can figure out how to do it. But there's none of that institutional knowledge in terms of the little tricks and the comfort level, let alone all the stuff that you don't know that you don't know that's going to bite you in the ass. So now our answer is the same. Hire a professional company. But what a lot of those companies now do is, as you've alluded to, they have a package, air quotes, where you get the hardware, they send out someone, they set up the hardware, and they train the performer and the operators in the safe use of the equipment. Um, and it's purposely done that way to try because they realize not everybody has an endless amount of money. But that goes back to nothing is worth doing if you can't do it right. Especially when you're talking about something where someone can get hurt. Um, so for, for the listeners who are on control booth and are like, Hey, I asked that question one time and you guys, you know, beat the crap out of me and just said, don't do it. It's not that we're trying to be mean. It's more of the case of there's so many variables that, learning to do it by yourself is not the answer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, over time, as, as the internet continues to spread and, you know, the, the, the mystery of the industry kind of fades a little bit every year because, because of the internet, because somebody has a picture somewhere of something that explains how something is done. Right. Um, but it still doesn't, go into the what a lot of people consider the boring stuff, which is the math. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, you went out and went down to Ace Hardware and you found a bunch of pulleys that sure do look like the ones on this picture of this legit flying rig somewhere, but you have no destruction testing history on that piece of plastic that you are pretty sure is going to work. And that, and yeah, that's, a, that's where a lot of it, especially on, on control booth comes from. It's, it, it's like, we're not trying to beat anybody up, but we are definitely putting on our, our parental voices here. Right. Trying to explain something. It's like, you can't do this because you, and I'm, I'm shaking my finger now, as I say, it's, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I talk about some of the, you know, there are, there are people around me all the time that are smarter than I am, that are more experienced than I am. And they are that sort of wizard level thing. And that's another thing that a lot of people kind of lose track of with rigging is that you're never going to stop learning. You're never going to learn at all. There's always something that changes. There's always something new. There's always something going on that you don't know about yet. Um, you know, and then when it, even if you even if you do get all the hardware and the math right, there's still that human part of the equation of when you put somebody on a wire, you know, 
you got to look at them and you've got to know, is this person ready to go? You have to look at your operators because if you're training a bunch of dads and, and I've, I've seen this with, with uh, organizations that I've had flying rigs up in the air where I've had to come in after being gone, having trained a set roster of operators and come back and seen people that I've never met before operating in the middle of a show. And I have disabled the system in the middle of a show for the Wizard of Oz. There is that human connection with your crew and your performers that has to be there to yep. maintain that trust. And that I think more than anything is what makes for a successful flight. Even with automated systems, oh, there there is a dance of, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll use I've I've mentioned this before. It's kind of like in the pro wrestling business. It's not two people in the ring; it's three. That referee who's doing nothing is part of the dance. Yes. With automated flying effects, that operator is still having a dance with the performer whether mm -hmm. that is holding the dead man switch and letting a, a pre-programmed series of events happen mm -hmm. except that that operator is communicating through whatever method eye contact knowledge of each other um telekinesis whatever mm -hmm. that they should be holding that dead man switch Mm -hmm. In that if it if if they sense if they know something's not right, they don't activate it or they wait that second because they know they're not quite ready. And I think that's something that people who don't have the experience don't recognize is that the number of rehearsals and going through it and learning that dance together so that it's flawless is a very important step. And you don't go out with your your partner and learn the waltz on your own you have someone teach you how to do it and the better you get they start nitpicking on smaller and smaller things so that you get it even more and more perfect so it's it's the same thing in all these aspects it's not just the person on a rope but it could be the control system or whatever the system is yeah i had a i had a conversation years ago um at, at Disneyland about this kicking around, you know, theoreticals and things like that with a production stage manager. And Sandy is just one of my favorite people in the world. And we kind of got down to the whole idea of, you know, you have, you have to make something happen. You have to make a flight happen. You have to make a, a certain stunt happen. And, you know, we were kind of like, you know, kicking it around, back and forth about, you know, you know, is, is go what you, what you aim for is go what really has to happen. And I just kind of looked at her at one point and I said, you know, think about all the things that could go wrong. Think about all, all the what ifs. I don't think is what I said to her. I said, I don't think I get paid to make a flight happen. I get paid to know when to push the stop button. And she just kind right. of stood there and looked at me for a second. And I went, does that make sense? And she's like, yeah, yeah, actually that, that does make sense. And that's, that's where, you know, yeah. Like that, 
that telekinesis that you have, especially if you're working with performers and a crew that are together on a very regular basis doing something, there is a, there is a level of mental and emotional connectedness that goes on. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can make your point about what's going on, you know, in a very low key sort of way. I have had full conversations in the middle of stunt shows with performers with nothing more than a tilt of a head or holding up a hand and having that performer respond to me in like fashion to where the audience had no idea that we were talking to each other non-verbally. And, you know, there it is. Everything happened. Nobody knew what was going on. And afterwards it was over. We had a full on talk down about, you know, was this little thing and this little thing and okay, we're, we're good. Um, but another situation I've been in was a middle of the night rehearsal where the, you know, the cast and the crew got some really bad news about a friend of the show. And it was very upsetting to a lot of people. Um, and the people that were, uh, the stage managers at the time were framing it to everybody going, okay, listen, if anybody doesn't want to continue with any of the aerial work tonight, just say so. And, you know, you'll be, we'll, 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 we'll cut you loose right now. You can go home for the night and we'll see you tomorrow. You know, no problem, no foul. And I spoke up and I said, no, we're done. And there was a little bit of confusion at, at the moment. It's like, oh, okay. So Brian, you're, you're done. I, I go, no, 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 we all are done. We have just yeah. gotten some really tragic news. People are crying. People are very upset. This is not the frame of mind that anybody, and I mean like not the costumers, not the flying crew, not the audio people, not the lighting crew, nobody. I go, you know, it's like we as a unit are done. And, yeah. was, and again, it was that, it was just that slight pause of like, yeah, okay. Now, now we're all on the same page and you know what? I'm not trying to sit here and go, I'm right. But we all kind of came back together on the same page. It's like, yeah, we are all done. We are all going home right now and we're going to go hug our babies and we're going to come back to this tomorrow night. And I, 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 I commend you on making that decision because especially in, in non-paid or non-professional environments. And I use that term, like for me, growing up racing sailboats, I learned something, and, and this is kind of an arbitrary distinction, but to me, the difference between an amateur and a professional is a professional makes money off of what they're doing. There are Olympic sailors who are better than quote unquote professional sailors mm -hmm. who get paid to race sailboats um, but they're amateurs. So it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your skill. So that's what I mean by non-professionals. Um, I have a crew of guys that I do performances with who are all volunteers and we're members of this organization. And we were debating doing something in a couple of weeks. Uh, obviously with the where way COVID numbers are trending, we decided not to, but Three months ago, four months ago, when we didn't know where things were going, I called each of my crew guys and I said, if we did something, would you be involved? And they all 
every single one of them said yes. And then I asked another question. I said, how comfortable would you be? Would you be 100% comfortable? And every single one of them said, no, I wouldn't be 100% comfortable. And what I was trying to emphasize to, to them and then ultimately to some of the other decision makers was if we said we were doing this thing, they would all show up because they don't know how to say no. And it's not a bad thing. It's just they want to be supportive. They want to be involved. They're going to be there. They're going to make this happen. But then you have to ask when you're the decision maker, is it the right thing to ask people to make that choice? And that's what you brought up, which is some of the people who are working would say these other people are depending on me. I will stay even though they may not be mentally prepared to do it. When the reality is the right choice was everyone walks away. The unit is not ready. And and we can use that chain analogy, which is the weakest link of the chain wasn't very strong. So why would you expose the entire chain to a failure? Yeah. You know, um, I'm not smart. Uh, you, you and I, before we got on uh, to the recording, you know, you had mentioned something about Joe Rogan and something that Joe Rogan said once was that I'm not smart. I just use the things that smart people invent. I'm, you know, not the guy that can sit there and quote formulas. And if I need to know something about ANSI or OSHA, I have to go look it up. I've got barely anything in my head. But if I've got one strength, one thing that I'm proud of, it's my ability to listen to that voice in my head that says, we need, we need to stop. I need to say no to something, even if it's temporary. Um, and there's a lot of that, especially when you're young in your career, that you don't have. It's the, we got to get the show on. You know, it's almost that Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland era of let's do a show and we're going to make it happen no matter what. And especially in rigging, in flying, in stunts, um, in automation, uh, as things just keep getting bigger and bigger everywhere we go, there needs to be a better relationship with the word no and with the word stop. Yeah. You know, we need, we need to take the stigma away from people that say no and people that say stop, because we're not saying, you know, we're hardly ever saying no permanently, irrevocably. It's just, we need to look at this. And yep. if I say no, or if I say stop to something and you can come at me and say, well, no, look, here's the evidence that we have. Here's what, you know, what shows us that this is going to be okay. If I'm wrong, I'm going to sit there and go, okay, I'm wrong. Let's go. Thank you for answering my question, but just what did it really cost you? Right. It cost us what time, uh, you know, I don't know. And that goes into the, that goes into something that as we onboard new hires uh, in tech services at the resort is something that my partner, Joel and I always tell people because we teach intro to rigging, we teach electrical safety, we teach hearing conservation, we teach, we teach you how to safely climb a ladder. You know, trying to get people away from, from that sort of cowboy, um, for lack of a better term, frame of mind. And what we're always telling people is that 
the worst epitaph you could have is that, you know, your life ended because of your job. Your wife and your kids and your pets and your friends and everybody else in your life, they expect you to come through that door at the end of, of the call. They expect yep. you to show up at sunrise after an all night you know, rehearsal, or they expect you to come home and sleep all day after you had that four hour bump in at the arena, you know, and they know that you're going to get up and go and bump out that night. And still in the middle of the night, you are expected to come home. You know, it's, it's, it's just something that I, I don't think I'm ever going to let go of. It's just, you've got to live to fight the next day. You've got to you know, you gotta, you gotta be there f to take out the trash. That's what, that's what the people in your life want. They don't care. You know, here, here's the thing. And we all know this. I don't care how cool your job is. I don't care how awesome the show was. When you get home, if you have teenage daughters, like I do, they don't care how cool you are in the real world. They want to beat your butt at plunk or exploding kittens after dinner. Right you know, that's where it's at. So yeah. And like, we can go out and we can do all this really cool stuff. And all we have to do, the only thing we have to do is go home in the same condition we showed up. Yep. You hear that a lot about celebrities when they have kids and they get home and they're like, my kid doesn't know I'm a celebrity. I'm, yeah. I'm mom. I'm dad. I'm the parent. And they could care less about all that other stuff and how important I think I am or how influential you think you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I'm very fond of saying that I got lucky out of college. I got a job and I got a career. That wasn't my entire life that I would walk away from it and I would say that's off of what street or do you want fries with that? I would do what I have to do to earn a living. Mm -hmm. But that one thing did not encompass all of who I am as a person. Right. Um, so. And you had mentioned earlier, I'm going to disagree with you on something. Okay. Or you say you're not a smart person. See, I think you're a very smart person. Um, there's a quote by Einstein that I've always loved, which is intelligence is not the ability to store information, but to know where to find it. And I think that's a very important thing where you mentioned, you know, when I was younger, when I started doing trainings, I think one of the things that made me good at it was my memory is really good. I would store all of this stuff in my head. I would keep all of the bridal math in my head. Why? Because I'm a dork. As I've become older, there's more stuff going in there and there's a, a finite amount of storage memory in there. Um, and you prioritize. So, you know. I don't keep things in my head, but I say, hey, this is where I can find that information. I can't tell you more than a sentence of, uh, heck, right now, I can't even tell you the ANSI number for the flying effects uh, document. Oh, yeah. Not um, <laughs> I, I'd have to look it up on the site to do it. But I know there's information in there about specific things. I know where to find different information. Um, and maybe that will stick my head more recently for a short time period while I'm using it. And then it will disappear. And I'll be like, huh, for instance, I don't remember truss loading charts for the different manufacturers or strut. I have those on my phone now. 
-hmm. I look up the PDF and I go, hey, what's 48 inches of P1000 truss? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, 540 pounds. Great. So knowing where that information is and being able to access it is, is the true sign of intelligence, not just, oh, you have all that stuff in your head. Is it impressive? Yeah. Can it be handy? Certainly. Um, but it's important to recognize that um, just because you don't store it in your head does not mean you're intelligent. The other thing I would say is there's a difference between having intelligence and being able to teach intelligence or information. Not everybody is a good teacher. Um, I think that's a different set of skills that you either acquire or you you have to be able to do that. So going kind of backwards, you're working at ZFX. Mm -hmm. Was Disney the next progression in the career? Was there something in between? Um, it... Ultimately, the question I want to ask is, how did you end up at Disney? Okay, so the, so the Disney story is kind of wacky, kind of crazy. Um, yeah, so the ZFX time lasted, I don't know, was it two or three years? And for me, uh, road burnout became a thing pretty fast, pretty quick. But I do tell people, it's like I, I have this whole phase of my career, which I'm still in, thanks to you know Paul Rubin, Robert Dean, and Kathy Rigby. And it only took me 19 years to meet Kathy Rigby finally last year. Uh, but yeah, the, the burnout got to me and I was back living in LA. And so after I was done with ZFX, I actually took a year off, sort of. Um, if you don't get crazy with your per diem, you can put a lot of money away uh, in a couple of years. Go figure. Uh, so I had, I had the ability to literally take a year off and just pick and choose what I was going to do. And a lot of what I was going to do was ride my mountain bike and just hang out in Long Beach. And, uh, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we were getting more serious. We knew we were heading towards getting married. And after about six months of hanging around the apartment, I fell into this weird gig in Hollywood. I was now the stage manager at a place called Club Vodka. And Club Vodka was the almost direct descendant of the 80s Hollywood hair metal scene. I mean, like it was a lot of the same crowd. It was a lot of the same band members. Um, we were in the building that got Guns N' Roses their start. There was a club in LA called the Cat House back in the 80s, and Guns N' Roses was the house band uh, for the Cat House. And suddenly I'm the stage manager, you know, standing on, on this revered and hallowed stage in my somewhat misspent youth. I'm like, wow, I'm like really here. Okay, cool. Uh, and it was just a thing to do, you know, once a week, get out of the house and... Then uh, after that, I was talking to some friends that were still at Disney and they said, you know, you should, you should come back. You should hang out, you know, let's, let's go do some stuff. And I went back to actually my old job, 
which was being on the parade crew. I started out, my first stint at Disneyland was in 1996. I was going to go drive the Main Street Electrical Parade just to say I did it because it was closing once and for all. Right. For real. And so that was that was four years that led that led to bouncing out for Vegas. So now I'm coming back and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll go hang out on Fantasmic and I'll, you know, ride around in the work boat with Mark and we'll just, you know, I'll, I'll do that a couple nights a week. Um and then uh, picked up a few side gigs for Vertigo Flying. Um, if you ever get a chance to hang out with Tracy Nunnally, prepare to have your, your mind expanded to levels you never knew possible. He's another one, you know, another one of those people that approach that sort of wizard level of things he knows that you never knew that you never knew. Um, but one day, uh, Disney was saying to me, hey, we need you to be available full-time for parade crew. And, you know, I was not really into the whole idea of, of going back to driving parade floats five nights a week. And I was like, ah, you know, guys, I'm, I'm not really sure about this. And so it came down to, okay, um, you know, I'm going to, it's, it's been a great year, but I'm going to, I'm going to take a walk and go, go see what else is going on. And a couple weeks later, a buddy of mine at uh, up in Creative gave me a call. He said, "Hey, we're doing this thing." I'm like, "Yeah, and it's really cool." Okay, keep going. <laughs> he goes, "You uh, you know how to fly people, right?" He's like, "Yeah, Jan, I know how to fly people. What's up?" Uh, and suddenly two weeks after having um, separated myself from the company, I was back in for an interview this time with tech services, which is the term we use for the stagehand department. And they told me what they were going to do with the fireworks show with a flying effect. And I was all in, uh, had an interview again. And two weeks later, they called me back and they said, come on in. And in the meantime, my wife and I had taken a night to go into the park and see this new fireworks show. And I just remember standing down in fantasy land across the street, across the street. It's not even that wide across the pathway from the Casey junior circus train, trying to get a look at the side of the Matterhorn to see where this effect started from. And when I'm watching this effect happen, jumping up and down like a complete lunatic just going yes yes i am down for that my dear wife <laughs> just going would, would, would you calm down you're gonna ask us to leave i'm like oh, they can't ask me to leave i i, I think i work here now <laughs> so i know people <laughs> i know people uh and so there it was um i didn't have to do the insanely hard work of installing this effect or ringing it out um Thankfully, you know, again, people way, way smarter than me, like Scott Fisher, um, came in to get that help. I got to walk in turnkey to a flying effect uh, on a scale of which I had never touched before. Had nobody had ever really seen anything this, like this before. And that was the next 12 years of my life um, sitting up there during the fireworks show making some flying happen. Um, 
so that's that 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 was a question that I've had for mm-hmm. you specifically for you um, that I'll ask, which is for our younger listeners who are just getting into the industry. There's this perception of you have theater and you have arena. I mean, geez, that's the two ETCP exams that we have. So that that must be all it is. Oh, there's this little corporate thing over there that's kind of like arena, just smaller. But there's actually a lot of different opportunities of rigging. What besides this flying effects, what other types of rigging might you find in a theme park? Is it all uh ride based i mean i would can you talk about some of the different rigging opportunities to say that you might find working in a large theme park sure um theme park rigging and i'm going to paraphrase uh ian bevan on this one theme park rigging is this weird hybrid beast it is neither strictly theatrical nor is it strictly arena uh and then you get the weird stuff that comes in the middle yes we have theaters on property we have a full-size the hyperion theater is a full-size broadway venue 90 foot grid i forget how many line sets automated there's flying effects on the shows in there when you walk in to the stage at the hyperion you know that you are in a theater when you walk into the Fantasyland Theater, you know that although it is an outdoor, you know, semi-amphitheater environment, you know that you are in a theater. Um, we have this one thing that ETCP doesn't touch. We have a three-masted windjammer, the sailing ship Columbia. Mm-hmm. Okay. The sailing ship Columbia is a full-size replica of the first United States flagged vessel to circumnavigate the globe. Um, and from the deck up, all the standing rigging, all the running rigging, the masts, the yards, everything else, this is all handled by the entertainment riggers. If you try to throw up things like shrouds, stays, you know, any number of things, lift lines to ESTA or an ETCP sort of, you know, frame of of reference. ETCP doesn't touch that. Right. On top of that, we're doing stunts in the rigging because it's part of Fantasmic. There is one flying effect, but it's, it all comes down to, yes, there are principles and methodologies of arena rigging that definitely apply to the Columbia. We know that, you know, the history of traditional theatrical rigging comes from, to some degree, from ships like this. But suddenly here you are on this 18th century vessel that, you know, a lot of people think it's like, well, it's a theme park. It, none of this works. No, all the rigging on the Columbia works. 
That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, the yards are all in the, in the wrong position for sales, but it works for it works for stunts and it works for shows. So that's why if you ever look at at the Columbia and you go, why is the main topsail yard in that position? Why is the main course yard there? It works better for stunts. Um, so you you really and and again, it's it's moving. It's making a show pass on this river in the middle of a show. ETCP certifications are, without a doubt, a good thing. They are, without a doubt, the future of the industry. Everybody's moving that way, and we all know it. It doesn't cover everything. Um, and and there it is. There's, there's the thing. You know, um, there is stunt rigging, but ETCP doesn't, doesn't touch stunt rigging. So... Am I going to have that certification one of these days? Yes, absolutely. One of these days I am going to have that certification. I do not have it right now. Um, it is not within the theme park industry as a whole from what I've seen. It's not really a priority for a lot of the companies, but it doesn't mean that we don't have people with their certifications. We do. Um, and again, it's, it's a great resource to have one of these days I will be that top 3%. I'm not there yet. Um, but in the, you know, in the meantime, keep that broad look at the world. Uh, you know, don't get, don't get target fixation on just what ETCP covers, because if you do, you might miss an opportunity to put on fancy pirate clothes and go shoot guns. Yeah. I, I it's funny. Um, Jim Shumway, one of the previous guests who works for Tate. Yeah. Uh, one of the projects that he works on every year uh, is the annual Fish New Year's Eve concert at Madison Square Garden. Right. And uh, they did something with a giant pirate ship in sales. And he and three of his coworkers ended up, they needed technicians in the rigging to deploy the sail in a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so they decided the best way for them to do it was for them to physically do it, but they had to be part of the show. So they got wardrobe and they dressed up and they actually did some performing stuff. So it's kind of those, one of those weird crossover opportunities where you do get to perform because I think in every single technician's brain, there's a little piece that says, I don't mind performing. I could do it. You may have horrible stage fright, but there's part of you that wants to do it. So there are some good opportunities, you know, to do that. And yeah, the ETCP is not for everyone. It was never designed to be for everyone. Right. And it isn't the end all be all. Um, I know quite a few very skilled riggers who don't have it for whatever reason i don't you know the same way that you can say having it doesn't necessarily prove anything not having it also does not necessarily prove anything mm -hmm. and thank you for bringing that up because that reminds me i need to renew my certification in uh 11 days oh, good times yeah now I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna jump into one other side story about the mighty sailing ship columbia is that um couple of years ago i mean because she does live outside all the time as ships do um 
you know, the effects of UV and the weather and rain and all the things that come from living outside, you know, that's, that's part of taking care of a ship. You know, uh, if you ever go, if, you know, if, if you live down by a marina anywhere and you go have Sunday brunch and you always see the guys that live on their boats are always sanding on something because the upkeep is constant. Um, a few years. You, you, you know what boat stands for, right? Oh, uh, yeah. wait, 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 wait. Uh, I, can, I can hear it in Dr. Doofenshmirtz's uh, voice. Uh, buoyant overseas aquatic transport. Break out another thousand. Or a whole, my personal favorite, a hole in the water into which one pours money. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I knew a guy that had a Chris Craft one time, and he, and he said to me the, the two happiest days of his life was the day that he bought his boat and the day that he sold it. He sold it. Yeah. The, the last one, and I'll let you continue, is uh, the, the, the best way to own a boat? Mm-hmm. Someone else's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. No, um, so like I said, you know the uh, the entertainment riggers are the ones that are that are keeping everything from from the deck up. In yeah, I'll go ahead and say it ship shape. Um, and a couple of years ago, it was it was time to go through and do a deep dive inspection on everything, and look at what you know in terms of you know there's there's daily maintenance that you can do. You know, if, if a seizing lets go on a rattling or something like that, and you can fix that in a few minutes. And there's a bigger projects that happen on weekly maintenance shifts and stuff like that. But it was time to look at, okay, let's look at the overall thing. Let's see what has to be done in terms of big work. And so a, a friend of ours from Seattle named Brian Toss came down and did an inspection with us and changed all sorts of work methods in my life in about three hours of just one afternoon just on how to cut rope. And he compiled a, you know, compiled a an inspection report for us. And it was decided that now is the time to re-rig the entire ship. Okay. So Brian brought a couple of his crew down from Seattle, but the rest of the crew was again, the entertainment riggers. Um, mm-hmm. and you don't buy tall ship rigging off the shelf. So it was, you know, Don and Javi and Randy and Rusty and, you know, all sorts of people came in and the entertainment riggers built the stays and built the shrouds and built the ratlins, like cutting things off the spool they, they, they served everything to get it, you know, just a little more durable so that we wouldn't have to take it down, you know, as soon as we, we thought we would. Um, and the, uh, the head rigger at that point for the boat is one of my, you know, one of the things I'm kind of, I'm kind of proudest of is you know, Megan was someone that started out as a barge tech on the show, um, you know, running lights and sound for the princess barges. And she wanted to learn this. And she and this is going back to the whole thing about having that attitude, whether you know, whether you know the skill or not, if you've got the right attitude, you know, 
we can teach you. And even after I was off the show, you know, Megan went and worked her way up from just in the, in the core of riggers that we had to head rigger for that show. And I've, you know, seen her in warehouses taking, you know, taking mainstays and wrapping them by hand in twine for days at a time. And just, yep. you know, just doing that work, you can, yeah, again, it, it goes back to if you have the attitude where you want to learn it, you're, you know, I would love to, I would love to, I think, I think I get people off to a good start. I certainly didn't make her into what she is now by a long shot, but I definitely put her in the rig for the first time. And I was like, okay, that's cool. She's going to be fine. And like, if I can get you started and then get the heck out of the way of the next generation, that's cool right there. But yeah, like super stoked on all those, all those people that like went in and just like, I love telling people, no, we didn't hire somebody to come in and do this for us. And we didn't order anything prefabbed. This was your friendly neighborhood entertainment riggers that did this by hand the old-fashioned way and and probably learned besides learning a skill an appreciation for the art side of it and probably pay more attention to it in an inspectional mindset and and wanting to take care of the entire apparatus because they know what's involved in doing it and and have that appreciation for it absolutely it was yeah, what, what Brian taught them, and like I said, I'm just picking this up by osmosis, by passing people in the hallway and hearing about what was going on during during the project, just knowing that they've all they've got all these specialty tools now and they can do it in a at a level that during my time on the ship, and that was still ten years as a as a rigger on that on that ship, they can do it at a level that I can't I, I still can't touch. If I went back there now, I would go back as their apprentice. I would go back as their student, which is cool because again, if you get caught up in that frame of mind that, that you know it all, you're just stopping yourself. You're never going to know it all. And I don't think anybody knows better than anybody else, broadly speaking, but I know a lot of people that know different things that I don't know. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that, you know, you can, if you know where to find, if you know where to find the information, if you know where to find the knowledge, then good to go. Right. So what you were saying before is, is you contributing to getting these people started mm -hmm. um, made me think of one of the questions I always ask, which is, it's clear that you've been a mentor to other people. Who have some of your mentors been? Wow. Um, it's not even a who have they been. It is who do they continue to be. And I think I add to that list all the time. Um, without a doubt, in terms of mentors, like the, the first person that showed me that I could do this in terms this this. And when I say do this, I mean be as, in this industry at a level that would work as actually having a job, having a, a career. Um, and, and, and please, I, I send this out to the world in general, you know, arts jobs are real jobs. Let, let's get away from that thinking of, of, you know, dancers and technicians and all that stuff. Like this is some sort of weekend job. This is a real thing. 
We know this, but let's keep putting that out to the world. Um, Holly Allborn was my was my first mentor um, as a stage manager, as an ASM, and just as an all around, you know, person within the industry. Um, the people that I still go back to even now, uh, Paul Rubin is is still like I'll even if I don't talk to him for a year. Um, if it's just his birthday, it's, you know, my birthday greeting to him on Facebook or on text message is always the same. It's like, it's like, thank you for everything that you have put into my life. You know, professionally, that was just like that next big step. And I can always call him up anytime I want and just go, Hey man, you know, here's, here's this thing, you know, what do you know about, about this? Whether it's some sort of new method, if it's a piece of gear, just, you know, whatever. Or if we're just talking about our kids. Um, most actively right now, really the people that are, that are, that are doing it for me are, um, again, he's, I, I always get his job title wrong. So I'm, I'm just going to say he's, he's pretty much the head rigger for all of the Western hemisphere for Disney. Uh, Ian Bevan, um, he got me started on the rope access thing. He has kicked me in the pants when I, when I need it. Um, if you have a mentor that you can about once a year, like really have, a, have an actual argument with and be mad at them and then work it out and, you know, over three or four days and come back and everything's cool. You're pretty lucky. And yeah, I've, I've, I've been able, I've been able to have that sort of relationship with Ian um, over, over time, completely invaluable. Uh, the, the font of, of all knowledge uh, the other thing in terms of mentorship, it really is becoming more and more of the people coming up behind me. What is the next generation doing? What is the next generation looking at? What is the technology that they're hip to? Because no matter how hard you try to stay current, as you get older, you start to lose a little bit of that edge, I think. Yep. So, you know, it's like, you know, I, I guess TikTok's a good example. I never would have found out about TikTok on my own, you know, but the people that I work with that are in their 20s that know about that, okay, cool. So they're learning things at a faster rate that I, that I am right now. They have got their finger on the pulse um, of, of, of what's happening next. So it kind of becomes, you know, if any... It's a little bit of a ninja thing, you know. Eventually, the student must destroy the master, and then we play some flute music, and you know, Robert Carradine walks on screen or something like that. But you know, I <laughs> yes, I'm making old kung fu references. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. No, but yeah, like like really, it's like the 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 further you get in into your career, look at what the people coming up behind you are doing and get out of their way because they are going to, they're going to smoke you eventually, no matter what. And you're going to be blown away by what you're seeing them do. So, you know, yeah, your, your, your mentors are behind you. They're, they're the next generation. They're, they're the ones that are coming up. I think that's a great answer. Um, what's on your, uh, your rigor bucket list, man, there's, I've done pretty much everything I've ever really 
thought of, um, including like, like, yeah, there's, there's Disney stuff that I've done that I, that I can't talk about. Um, but use your imagination and you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. Uh, one of these days I'm going to get, you know, the COVID thing is going to be behind us in some fashion and theaters are going to be open again. And so help me, I am going to get back to LDI and get that tour of Ka. Yeah. I mean, yep. I, was, I, I saw that show on my honeymoon and just, you know, sitting there with my wife and I'm look, like looking at her going like, no, I used to work in this room when it was EFX. I don't recognize this place anymore. And, you know, just sitting there at, at the scale of it, I've looked at all of the, you know, the YouTube videos and I've, you know, done all the, all the documentaries and stuff like that and looked at it, but it's like, no, because the, the folks on control booth that have been there for the LDI tours and for the, for the, you know, here you get to follow, follow the crew around during the show told me about all this stuff and i'm just like I, I i've just got to go check that out one of these days and and for the listeners let me express this that should mean something to you not because you know we're, we're all dorks and we love learning this but someone who works for a very very large company who Again, outside of what is now our pandemic daily lives, but outside of that has a lot of resources and a lot of their own technology and in a lot of areas has been the uh, driving force in some advances of technology. For someone who works for a company like that to, to look at another large company and say, that's really cool and I want to check that out, should A, talk about your passion for what you do but also some of the creative stuff that they're doing. And I think that's that's something I was telling a friend of mine who's not in the business that when you get into this industry, the entertainment industry, you ruin going to a concert for the rest of your life because the number of concerts I went to when I started doing theater and then I got into college and I'd look, what's the rig? What are the lights? What are they using for control? I wonder if I can get backstage. I wonder if I can introduce myself to the right person to get on stage to look at the floor package, stuff like that. And then you realize that you spent the entire show thinking about that and not just enjoying the art that was being created in front of you. Um, all of the art, not just you know, the lighting or the automation or whatever. Um, you, yeah. We're always going to have that. We're always going to go to other shows and be like, oh, how do they do that? But yeah, Ka, Ka is one of those things where you're like, okay, everyone talks about how impressive this show is. And I know the stage is going to do this thing. Mm -hmm. But then you see it and you're like, yeah, that's still freaking cool. That is really awesome. And even though I knew it was coming, I'm still impressed. Yeah. And, you know, with concerts, it's it's like, you know, except when that gets back, nobody's doing less flying in rock and roll right now. Everybody's doing more flying. So, you know, I've 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 really kind of got to hand it to Pink for some of the ideas that that they've done with her shows you know when she had mm -hmm. that, when she had that four axis rig 
and is doing laps in the air around arenas like going okay man like i'm i'm down for that and i can only imagine what it's like at her house you know talk about how was your day at work honey it's like oh well i had this four axis flying flying rig you know it's like wait who, who are you married to you're, you're married to a guy who backflips dirt bikes for a living you know it's like what's i want to go to dinner at their house too yeah <laughs> and they're always trying to one up each other yeah you know it's like i was like oh no it's just the first guy to do a backflip in, in, in a contest on a, on a dirt bike oh well i'm flying on a four axis rig hey who's dropping the kids off at school tomorrow? Oh. yeah Exactly. What? Ki- oh man, we forgot the kids. Yeah, and and again, you know, at some point, Carrie Hart has has to take the has to take the trash out, and you know, Pink is probably you know sorting socks, you know, on laundry night. Yep. You know, some things are universal. Oh, absolutely. I, I, <clears throat> it's funny. A lot of my acquaintances, friends who are still in the wrestling business, who are talent. A lot of them, I saw them on their very first day. They hadn't done a day of training, and they are on the ring crew, and they're carrying the beams in, and they're setting up stuff, and now they're on Friday Night SmackDown, wrestling in the main event, and are huge celebrities. And once in a while, you get a message from someone, and you're like, hey, you know what? That person that I knew, that that 19, 20, 22-year-old person, still there. That person is still there. It's just different. They've developed. Um, so it is interesting to see. And um, I'm hopeful that a lot of the people listening to this have or will get to work with some great artists to create stuff. And I've I've said it numerous times that the ones that get it recognize that what they do may be the focal point of the art but it is a collaborative effort and they appreciate every single chain link in that process and what they contribute, whether it's the bus driver, the production manager, the tour manager, the drummer. Okay. Really? No one cares about the drummers and, uh, (laughs) you know, whoever it is, you know, it is awesome to be able to work with talent like that who gets it and you understand that you're building this together because it just, everyone buys in. Yeah. The, the first time you get your bacon saved by a performer, if you don't understand the collaborative nature of it, that, that will point it out to you um, real quick. Because one of my more recent shows at the park is a very small show um, that lasts 20 minutes there's no stunts in it, but a little bit of automation and a little bit of traditional rigging. But because of the way it the, the way the show flows, you literally have scene changes where you've got just barely enough time to go touch the thing that you need to move, put it in position, get back and push your button for your next automation cue. And if you miss one thing, you have possibly ruined a key gag on stage for the show. So when you start thinking, you know, like me, uh, when I, when I first got on to castle fantasy fair was, you know, it's like, Hey, I'm pretty cool, man. I've I've been doing all this flying and all this automation. I'm very specialized. Well, my fundamentals had eroded over 12 years of being a specialist. And so now suddenly you're just the slow 
new guy and these performers are having to pick up your slack so that they don't, you know, have these awkward, weird moments on stage where we don't have to do a show stop. So, you know, there it is. If you think you're cool, just wait until, you know, someone that, you know, just check your ego because sooner or later you're, you're going to get caught. Yep. It will happen to everyone. And as I've said before, it's only an order of magnitude, how, how big of an experience it is. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the worst rigging horror show you've encountered? (sighs) Okay. Let's go back to, let's go back to the ZFX days of walking into a, um, it, it was one of those setups where you install the gear, train, the local crew, the dads in this case, and it's you have your you have your liability roster that everybody has has to be on. Um, you're like going, okay, these are these are the eight people that I trained, and these are the only eight people that are allowed to operate this system. And you know, I've got to go and bounce to the other side of the country for a couple of weeks. And because you're local to me, when I come back, um, I'm just going to check in with you guys. And I walked in one night in the middle of a performance and I saw four dads pulling lift lines that I had never met before and doing it poorly. And so there it was in, in the middle of, of a wizard of Oz performance, um, you know, a children's theater company where, you know, I, I, I get it. You know, everybody wants to do the show and everybody wants to have a good time, but you know, again, you're not, thinking at the same level that you know that we are that do this for a living i walked up got all the kids back on the ground at the uh, as soon as possible and got up on a ladder in the middle of that show and took took the ropes off the lift lines and disabled five systems and had to go find find the director of the show and go what are you doing and to see the absolute lack of recognition on this, on this, you know, responsible adults behalf that, you know, the whole idea of like, oh, let's, let's let, let's let Bob take over tonight or let's let Ted, you know, do it tonight. It's like, no, it's like, you're, you're, you're showing me that you don't value the integrity of a, what we choreographed and how it looks for your show, because it looks like trash this is this is everyone's nightmare of like this doesn't look like flying this literally looks like a bunch of little kids swinging around on on wire um you you have completely discounted the safety of these children Uh, who can't make a choice for themselves yeah right like they they 100 percent trust in the adults that they're not going to go splat yes and it's always the, the smallest ones that turn out to be the flying jitterbugs, you know? And it's like, okay, that kid is four. The kid doesn't even really fit that harness. What are you doing? Yeah. You know, you know and then, and then on the other hand, you know, whether it's, whether it's burns on your hand from when you, when you burn through your gloves on a lift line or you twist an ankle or whatever, as an operator, you're not, you're, you know, running manual systems is hard. It's a lot of work. You're often on a one-to-one with, you know, Wendy, Michael, and John. That's more often than not, that's just a one-to-one. You're pulling the full weight of that kid. You have to, you have to be in shape for that. 
and you think that the nursery scene doesn't last that long. No, the nursery scene is long. You know, a three I, a, a, a three minute flight in a, in a three minute song. It's it the, the closest thing I've ever found to it is is it's boxing. Yep. You know, I, I used to tell people um, if you think pro wrestling is is easy and fake, run around in a ten foot circle for fifteen minutes nonstop. And tell oh, yeah. me how you feel. Oh no, it's, um, it's like the first time someone comes comes into our gym uh, for jujitsu, and they're just sucking wind, you know, almost instantly. It's like, hey, these are just warm ups. <laughs> that that guy over there is just a white belt. <laughs> Which, for the listeners, that is an inside jujitsu joke. White belts and jujitsu is just it's part yeah. of the culture. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is the other the other thing that every rare should do i don't care if it's arena or theater is work a nutcracker with a snowbag because that's the same thing oh how hard is it to make it snow for a five minute piece <laughs> well you're moving let's say a 50 foot long batten has no weight on it except for the snow it doesn't weigh anything but you're moving that up and down 24 36 inches non-stop for five minutes mm-hmm. You know, depending on the size of your theater, it could be 60, 70, 80 pounds up and down for five minutes. It's a pretty good workout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your, your your biceps, your triceps, your shoulders, they're all they're all going to be burned out at the end of that. For, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What's what's your biggest fear as a rigger besides dropping something or someone? Passing on my bad habits. And I had a lot of them for a really long time. And it didn't have anything to do with things like, you know, screwing in shackle pins or paying attention to how your carabiners were oriented or anything like that. My, my bad habits were the ones that let my ego get out of hand for a long, long time. I was the guy that yelled. I was the guy that was completely snarky all the time and that started in college as a stage manager um because i fell into that trap of you know it's like oh you know you know the 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 stage manager is in charge and the stage manager must rule with an iron fist and i don't know where i got that from but i totally fell into that trap and that followed me for a really long time um and that's the part of it that I don't want to pass on to anybody that wants to learn rigging. I want to be the guy that totally shares the knowledge. I want to be the guy that, you know, if I can't, if I can't get you the answer that you're looking for, I want to be able to point you towards it, but I want to encourage you now. And unfortunately I, I, I still see residual effects of this in a couple of people. Um, that have come up behind me in a couple of places. And I still just try to like live that, I that model that behavior in front of them. It's like, Hey man, you know, the whole tough guy thing, the whole tough guy thing just in rigging in general needs to go. It scares people off and it's going to make it harder for all of us to retire. If we don't get the people in that are curious about it, it's, you know, at, at, at some point, we were all the newbie. We were all the person that had no idea about any of this whatsoever. And somebody 
This is the part we all forget at some point. Somebody took a chance on us and started showing us some stuff. And we didn't trip over ourselves enough to make them, you know, send us packing. Yeah. So, yeah, we, you know, and this is, this is a topic with uncle Bill um, is this kind of feeds into diversity and inclusion in the industry, especially in rigging. It's now a monthly discussion on, on his free, uh, on his free classes on his website. There's a lot of people out there that want to get into this, that don't look like, you know, straight white males. So don't be that guy that, that scares them off. You know, listen, listen in ways that you can't even think of. It's, it's just that if you see the slightest bit of curiosity in it, go show somebody something, show them how to do a Nyko press the right way. Show them what a no-go gauge is, you know, get them hip to bright, to just the basics of bridal math, you know, any, any little thing like that. If anybody, you know, this, this, this is kind of like my mission for however, however long I've, I've got left in the, in the industry is, you know, is like, let's just anybody that wants in, I want to get them in. That's what I want to do. And I want to, I want to, I want to make up for being that loudmouth jerk that I was for over a decade. That's what I want to do. Recognition and reversal. Yeah. Isn't that what they call it in literature and in storytelling? Yeah, I think so. Yep. What's, uh, you have any favorite tools or widgets or devices right now? Um, I am always going to have a minimum of six no-go gauges in my house. I don't, I don't have a Nyko press tool in my house, but I will always have six no-go gauges in my house. That doesn't count the four that are sitting in my locker on property at, at the park right now that I can't get to because, you know, we're furloughed. But yeah, if, if you handed me a playing card stack of no-go gauges tomorrow, I would not, you know, Yes, give give me all fifty two of those, please. I will. Yep. I will take that. I was a fan for years of like anything free that Jr. Clancy gave away. Yeah. You know, I just you know, it's like I don't I, you know, I've I've walked around places just placing random you know batten end caps on on stuff. You know the the little the little slide rule style reference card that they that they were giving out for years. I've I've got those stashed everywhere you know but yeah just i don't know something about the no-go gauge i'll just i'll that's my fidget spinner i'll sit there and just twirl those between my fingers yeah yep absolutely i have uh i have two of them tied together a uh local walk one and a nyko press one when Mm -hmm. i do inspections and they're maybe a foot apart on a piece of tie line white tie line and it goes in the pocket when i'm doing an inspection and when i start to do lift lines i'll be like, all right, what size is it? How many crimps is it? It's that tool. This is the go no go gauge I got to use, and I'll check those. And um, throughout the inspection, that piece of tie line is wrapped around my finger, and I got both of them with me, and they clank together. And it's yeah. just that's the noise I associate when I'm doing inspections. It's clank clank clank. So yeah, and when and when you can show people that it's like, look, this takes the guesswork out of this. You don't have to think for a minute that this is good to go. And, and, and that's one of those little aha moments when people, especially when people are new and they're like, wait, there's a thing that you don't, you don't have to go. No, you don't have to know anything other than fit this in here. 
Yep. I got to tell you that the, the battery operated switching tools turns out both manufacturers are yeah. just rebranding the same it's made by a company called Husky spelled differently than the Home Depot Husky. Right. Um, but the beautiful things, those are self-adjusting. Now mm-hmm. you still have to check them because yeah. you can do something like you put the, the die. So it's not a multi-jaw tool. You change the dies for each size of wire rope you're doing. Well, you can put those dies in improperly so they're not seated all the way. So you you do want to check them. But yeah, that was one of the first when I formed the company and I eventually had a project and I had to do a bunch of switches. That's one of the tools I bought. They're filthy expensive. They're yes. about $3,000 plus the dies at two fifty dollars a pop. Ballpark. Yeah. Um, but well worth it, especially when you're in a lift in the dark with the wire rope above your head and you're trying to do a, a an eye of wire rope through a object, you know, they help. Yeah. And they're oh. certainly fun. But teaching people how to do it and to use them and to check the work and say, here are the things to look, look for. And it's so simple, but people learn to do it and they take pride in doing it well and it's not hard to do switch fittings properly and make them look pretty and you feel good about it it's so silly but it's totally an endorphin kick you're like look how good that looks i made this thing it's awesome yeah that was i didn't learn how i didn't learn how to make compressions until i started working for zfx and robert dean taught me how to do that by sitting me down in the in the shop one day he gave me a bag of eighth inch sleeves he handed me a spool of eighth inch wire rope and he gave me a CGMP tool and he showed me how to do it on eighth inch and how to gauge it. And then when it came down to the length of the tail, which was a big, big detail. And there has, and there has been, you know, I've seen all sorts of talk and discussion and different standards depending on where I go. But at the time it was, all right, you see that tail sticking out of that sleeve? Yeah. Put your thumb down on it you know, the pad of your thumb on it and twist. If you bleed, you have too much tail. Yep. (laughs) And I was like, it just got real. And I sat there for, uh, for about four hours and learned how to do it. And pretty happy that I only needed one bandaid. And, and I've said it before. I'll say it again, especially when you're doing a inch or smaller, you get a wire in your fingertip and it's like an iron test and it just, it, it stings and it hurts. But yeah, that's one of those skills you learn. How much layback do you do and how much is a particular sized fitting going to stretch with a particular tool? Um, how much does it stretch? And that, that's a question I get a lot when in inspections, people will ask, Hey, I have no tail coming out of the fitting. Well, that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, does it make it harder to inspect because you can't see it? Yeah. But I'll also tell you in my experience, when you see a fitting which visually looks like it's been done correctly, so the correct number of crimps, the apparent correct uh, compression size is correct, you don't find fittings that slip. Um, the ones that do slip, 
were were nowhere close to being done correctly. But the important thing here's here's the technical knowledge of the podcast is that the tail of that wire rope is through all the compressions. Yes. That is the most important thing. So if your last compression is at the very end of the fitting and your tail is flush with it, that may be a little close. Maybe you want a little 16th more. But if that compression is half a compression length from the end of the fitting and you're flush, it's not going to move. It's just as strong. But it's one of those things that people are so used to, hey, if I don't see tail, it makes me nervous. Yeah. Okay. And and this, this is a, well, you know, two things. The... The whole thing about you know, how does it look? How much tail are we are we bringing out of it? I had that distilled down for me by um, one of our guys years ago. Rusty came up with boiling it down to pretty is strong, and that yep. applies to so much to what we do. If it looks good, there's a high probability that it is good. You can't assume all the way, but make it look good. Make it look right. Um, and then even today, if you put two or three of the park riggers together, you know, sitting around at lunch, it's not hard to get us to start debating the pros and cons of different t- lengths of tail and how to keep it from, you know, scratching you as you're, as you're going by it. And how can we, you know, because especially on the Columbia, um, you're squeezing through a lot of, a lot of bridles and a lot of things that are at angles and there is a lot of wire rope backups up there. So the tails, so the tails eventually, you know, start to sort of fuzz out and yeah, you, you come home with weird scratches and and small cuts all over the place. So, you know, where did I get that from? Exactly. And, and it is an ongoing thing that we chase is how can we still keep the tails visible, but keep them from splaying out and turning into these, the, these instruments of destruction? You need a fuse cutter. Huh. Yeah, I've, I've been trying to I've been trying to source one. There's a, a manufacturer, a, a large Wisconsin manufacturer that has one, and that's what they use to cut their wire rope on their product. Hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to find out, I don't know if they made it or they acquired it, but what I'm talking about is imagine an industrial sized, uh, foam cutter that you would put in, in your old school, uh, soldering gun. It's a flat piece of metal that's really thin with voltage running through it. And you use that to cut your wire rope. But when you do it, it fuses, it melts the end of the wire rope together it's like a regular rope cutter, except, sure. you know, more industrial. And those ends are welded together. And it's such a beautiful thing. But I'm sure they're also silly expensive. Well, I mean, you know, one of the benefits to working for a multinational, you know, entertainment conglomerate is that sometimes the budget is uh, pretty solid. You know, the the year that ABC was acquired by Disney. Was that late 90s? Yeah. Early 2000s? And and part of that big deal was, you know, Disney now own, owning ESPN. So they did their annual shareholders meeting in, in Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. 
and I got to move, work with Jeff Ravitz, who uh, from Moody Ravitz Design, um, and he was the lighting designer, and I got to work with him on their journal session. And this was, uh, again, near the end of Michael Eisner's run near there but it was a very fun experience going to the the shareholder meeting for disney and people asking questions and then they had someone get up and say i make a motion to adjourn and they're like okay and i was like i think that person works for disney actually (laughs) i think they're a plant so they could finish and get out of here right um yeah yeah resources are good yeah always all right you ready for the hard one go for it what is your best or worst rigor joke? Here we go. You ready? Yeah. Two riggers walk past a bar. Hey, it could happen. Exactly. Was never said by anyone. Yeah, that's that, that's why I, I still go back to using when I when I teach someone how to tie a bowline, I always use the you know rigger goes out of the bar, goes around the back to get into a fight, and comes back into the bar. Yep. When I got to college and and the stagecraft class, and they were teaching bowlines. I learned a bowline racing sailboats, and so I never looked at it. I just mm-hmm. did it. Right. And they started telling the rabbit comes out of the hole and goes around the tree. And I'm like, what the heck are you people talking about? This makes no sense. Or the stagehand comes out of the bar. It just visually, it took me 20 years to figure it out and be like, okay. And now when I teach it, when I tell people, I'm like, first of all, I'm going to tie a bowl in while I'm talking about something completely different. Because if I stop and think about it and look at it, that's where I start to screw up. So... Yeah, there, there, there's there's a lot of things that, that just go on autopilot. And sometimes when it comes down to, to the bowling, if I'm talking too much and trying to make it too simple for someone, I know I can just see it on their face. Like you are confusing the daylights out of me. I'm like, okay, just watch what I do and stand next to me and do what I do. Yeah. And then practice. Yeah. So, all right, Brian. Well, I got to say, I've had a wonderful time talking with you and, and learning about your uh your journey in the industry and the projects you've worked on and i think there have been some great discussion about different things so i really have to say thank you for taking time to to do this and talk and be part of of the podcast so thank you Uh, it is my pleasure it is my honor never expected to you know be here because there's some uh there's, there's some there's some pretty uh, rarefied air floating around these episodes, for sure. Uh, before we get going, there's just one yeah. thing I'm, uh, I'm going to throw out there. Uh, Absolutely. Is, I'm not wearing my Disney name tag. I do not speak uh, as a representative of the company. This is just me talking about my, st- my stuff, all my thoughts, all my opinions, all of my math are my own. Uh, but if you run into me out there on controlbooth.com under the uh, screen name of what rigor, hit me up. Uh, I am always down to talk. And uh, yeah, again, yep. thank, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me tonight. Oh, thank you. And, and I'll give, you know, another plug of controlbooth.com. Both Brian and I, uh, we're, we're, we're two of eh, about four curmudgeon old rigor types that Often we'll get the uh, we joke is the bat signal when someone tags you because someone will ask a question and be like, 
what about this? And then someone else would be like, what rigor? E. Gilson won, a couple of other names. You know, what do you guys think about this and 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 do that? So um, if you want an opportunity to ask questions or, or to search the history, you, if you go to, not to sound like a plug, but to be a plug, if you go to controlbooth.com and use the search feature and look for performer flying or um, Peter Pan or any of that type of stuff, you'll find some good conversations, but you'll also find some videos people have posted of, hey, this is why you don't want to do it making it up on your own. And they show the 12-year-old flying into the flat. Um, yeah, some that, of the, the less prouder moments of performance. Um, not that we want to, you know, promote people getting hurt, but it is, it is good to learn of, Hey, here's, here's the reality. Here's how it went bad and what you can learn from it and why you want to hire professionals to teach you. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, again, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for listening is greatly appreciated. Um, I hope uh, everyone's uh, doing okay and, and we're moving on from this election fiasco and hopefully moving forward. So until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.